Good evening again, listeners, and welcome to Carmelite Conversations. Thank you for joining us again. Just a quick reminder, we're in the second of a four-series um, program on St. John of the Cross. St. John of the Cross being, of course, uh, what many of us refer to as the father of the Reformed uh, Carmelites, uh, led uh, along with St. Teresa of Avila, who we just finished a lengthy series on, and now we're picking up with St. John of the Cross. Uh, St. John um, uh, speaks about uh, these dark nights, and we're going to deal this evening with the second of four of the nights that John talks about. The second of those is the passive night of sense. But before we get into that, let me say hello again to my co-host, Francis Harry. Hello, Francis. Good evening, Mark. It's a joy to be back. I'm looking forward to this conversation tonight because this is what God is doing in the soul. And I want to reiterate up front, as I do each week, um, the um, the desire that we have to have others participate in the conversation. This is genuinely, Francis, as you and I talk when we uh, so early on began to uh, think about what we wanted the program <clears throat> ultimately to be, it was genuinely a conversation. And so I want to invite our members of Carmel, our friends of Carmel, as well as those who may not be uh, actively participating in a Carmelite community, uh, but listening and interested in the charism of the Carmelite order and uh, the devotion to contemplation. If you want to participate in the conversation with us this evening, we'll, as I said, be covering the passive night of sense. I have no doubt that many of our listeners, Francis, have probably had experience with this. They're certainly familiar with the literature. And this is not easy literature. Some of it is difficult. The, The terminology can be somewhat um, challenging for our modern era and, and uh, uh, the experience that so many of our Carmelite brothers and sisters bring with us is important to us. So I want to just put the number up front uh, before we pray. That number, if you do want to participate in the conversation, is 1-866-333-6279. And again, as we do every week, uh, Francis, I'm going to ask you if you would please to lead us in prayer. I'd like to ask our listeners to please join us in the Hail Holy Queen, because this is the feast day of the Queenship of Mary. And so as we pray this prayer, let's really be thinking of her as the Queen of Heaven and Earth. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Hail Holy Queen, Mother of Mercy, our life, our sweetness, and our hope. To Thee do we cry, poor banished children of Eve. To thee do we send up our sighs, mourning and weeping in this valley of tears. Turn then, most gracious advocate, thine eyes of mercy toward us. And after this our exile, show unto us the blessed fruit of thy womb, Jesus. O clement, O loving, O sweet Virgin Mary. Pray for us, O Holy Mother of God, that we may be made worthy of the promises of Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Francis. Well, I want to make one other uh, note. Um, Of course, we have the the wonderful feast today, uh, feast day today, honoring our mother. And we, the members of the Carmelite community, take um, this uh, feast with great uh, joy because she is the mother of our order in a special way. I think we can say that, Francis, oh, in yeah. a way uh, unlike any other order. The Blessed Mother, uh, we believe, has embraced the Carmelite order. She 
really commissioned the order, and of course the monks early on, uh, following in the tradition of Elijah, as we've spoken about many times, and we'll speak about Elijah again this evening, look to Mary as the model of what um, we as members of the body of Christ really ought to be. And of course, um, her focus on the interior, her focus on silence, her focus on seeing everything through the prism of her relationship with her Lord and Savior, in addition to her Son, Jesus Christ, is exactly what we're called to in our life. And so we want to focus on that. At the same time, though, I want to uh, remind all of our listeners to uh, spend some time in prayer for the youth of our world. Of course, we are just finishing up um, the Youth Day Conference in Spain this uh, past week. A wonderful success from everything that we're able to read. Uh, Some 1.5 million of uh, uh, young Catholics across the world attended the final Mass. All fired up, probably uh, experiencing uh, a lot of consolations. (laughs) And and if there's one thing that we need to be doing for our youth today, certainly it's, you know, counseling and supporting and doing all of the uh, the necessary things to make sure that they get a good start in life, they get good direction and counsel. But for us Carmelites, recognizing the model that we have in the Blessed Mother, more than anything, I think we need to be praying for our youth. We need to be lifting them up as the Holy Father counseled us, because there are so many challenges. I know at uh, uh, my middle years of life, Francis, of course, we're very much uh, close in age. Um, I didn't have to face so many of the trials and challenges that our youth have to face today. And the only way that we're going to lift them up, uh, aside from our immediate interaction with our own children or perhaps uh, other family members or close friends, is through prayer. And we really need to, uh, to engage in prayer for our youth. Yes, so let's beseech Our Lady, Queen and Mother of Mount Carmel, to intercede for our behalf for all of our youth. Well, um, I want to just recover some ground to uh, make sure that we're uh, back on track in terms of the uh, progression of St. John of the Cross's teaching about the journey to God and union with God. Last week we spoke um, about the active night of sense. And we said, Francis, that when we hear the word active in St. John, we're referring to what? Mortification, things that we can do. And so that leads me to this question, Mark. Explain, or what is mortification? That's the question. Well, we touched on mortification a little bit last week, didn't we? And and, uh, one of the things that um, we actually had a a caller or a a question offline later um, asking for uh, more detail on exactly what do we mean by mortification. And I would say first, mortification is simply uh, fulfilling the obligations of our state in life. That in and of itself for many of us can be a significant uh, mortification. And I don't say that in jest. I mean, genuinely, uh, many of us are faced with many challenges throughout the course of our given day. And fulfilling those responsibilities in a, in a prayerful way, in a joyful way, with patience, uh, in and of itself is mortification. But we can seek other mortifications for the body. And I think uh, one of the best ways to understand this, and it's a teaching from the Desert Fathers, actually, is we remember that the word mortification has the word mort in it. And there's a death associated, of course, with that word. And so what we are, in effect, trying to do is kill the passions that otherwise distract us. Anything that might impede our union with God has to be removed, in the most deliberate terms, killed, Uh, And this is what mortification leads to. So it certainly has to do with uh, those things in our life that we know are wrong, that we know are uh, objectively leading us astray. But even with regard to 
what might otherwise be seen as perfectly innocent or appropriate um, uh, affections for uh, things in our life, sense things in our life, we still have to engage in mortification, restricting ourselves. And we'll see the significance of that this evening when we talk about the passive night of sense, where God begins to build on the structure that we've put in place in the active night of sense. I couldn't help but think on my drive over here tonight that this is that climb up Mount Carmel, up the mountain. There is so much that you can do as a hiker on that path. You know, you can pack your bags, you can, you know, drink plenty of water. There's things that we can do. Those are the active things. So that's what we talked last night about, the active night of sense, things that we can do to help us grow in our love of God. And tonight, we're thinking about, well, those elements that start to take over. We're on that mountain. We're halfway up, maybe. (laughs) And, you know, the sun is coming up, and it's getting hot, and maybe the wind is blowing as well, and, oh, the mosquitoes are, you know, really coming out. And these are things that are coming at us. But all in all, these things are also helping us to uh, persevere and to stay focused on what's important. And, of course, our eyes are on Christ. So we want to get to the top of the mountain, climb the ascent to meet Christ at the top, and he is luring us forth. He's calling us forward. And we want to emphasize, too, the importance of of recognizing these uh, teachings of John apply to normal, everyday life. You know, we said, I think, uh, touched on the point last week, You don't have to be living in a monastery to live through these stages of purification, the purity of heart that we're that we're seeking. Nor do you have to run away to a retreat. Retreat, of course, retreats are helpful and they give us time away and they give us time for reflection. But the normal circumstances of life, I said a moment ago, uh, the obligations of fulfilling our state in life are all that we need to bring ourselves or to be uh, disposed to the Lord bringing us through these various stages of purification that John talks about. Yeah, we've got to remember that God works in our moment wherever we're at. We don't have to go out and do anything special. Uh, Every little moment counts, and I think Therese, the little flower, was an excellent example of uh, aspiring and and doing those little acts of holiness in the moment. Exactly, the little things, the importance of the little things. And, of course, we'll be doing a series on Therese, and we're going to talk uh, extensively about that. I want to draw a somewhat separate analogy, though, from the one that John draws in his writings. He talks about, actually, the idea of a portrait and the creation of a, of a character uh, through the uh, act of painting. And I want to suggest a different analogy, and that's the act of sculpting. Uh, we are really the, the rock, if you will, and what we're going to enter tonight in the passive night of sense is the Lord beginning the difficult work of sculpting us removing those things that we wouldn't perhaps be able to remove ourselves either because we don't see them or we may not have the strength to do it, and beginning then to reveal the hidden image of Jesus Christ, which we all know is within us. Paul tells us uh, the image of Christ, of course, is within us. Christ tells us the kingdom of God is within. It's less an act of creating something, of building something, then it is an act of surrendering ourselves in this stage so that the Lord can do the necessary work, painful as it might be at times. It's nonetheless the necessary work that has to be done. And it's more about a removal of those things we've sort of picked up in our life uh, than it is about sort of creating something anew. It's kind of like growing pains, you know. As you get older, you go through those stages of growth. Well, this is the spiritual growth. 
you know, I like this uh, analogy as well. Uh, most of us spend our spiritual lives trying to get God to love the person that we want to become. <laughs> well, God is busy loving the person we already are. Right. And I like that analogy because we have to recognize that we have the image of Christ deep within us. The divine indwelling uh, uh, teaches us that we have the spark of Christ within us. It's more about getting in touch with that and removing those obstacles, those impediments, which the Lord is going to work on here this evening in the passive night of sense. And it might be also us chipping away at the image that we've created of God, limiting him to our own perspective and our view. So now we're going to have to have a larger perspective, and God is going to come in and lure us by trying to uh, uh, expand the capacity of our soul. So he's going to take away the sweetness, right? That's actually a great analogy. Um, uh, again, a teaching from the Desert Fathers, uh, God created us in his image. He's not waiting for us to create him in our image, which we so often do. And, of course, we limit God when we do that. And the work that happens in the passive night, both in sense and in spirit, is God's effort to dismantle our illusions, to dismantle the misperceptions that we have. Not that they are fundamentally wrong, simply that they're limited our limited intellectual perceptions of God, our limited uh, sense of how he should respond in our prayer situations, all limit who God really is to the capacity of the human person to perceive him. And God says, don't limit me this way. Let me show you that I'm a larger God than you're, than you're envisioning. And if we want to put that in our own personal experiences, you can think about the mother who is weaning her child, um, and it takes some effort to, you know, get away from the old way of doing things and entering a new way. And St. John the Cross actually uses this metaphor of the mother who is nursing her child and now must proceed to wean them. So this is where we're at in this passive night of the sense. I want to repeat, too, something I said last week, and I indicated that I would repeat each week, because I think it's important. It bears uh, repeating. The inevitable question, well, what is John telling us? What is this all about? You know, some 400-plus uh, pages here, Francis, of very um, uh, deep mystical writing, um, and, and it can be somewhat challenging at times. So simplify that for us. What is it that John is really focused on entirely? All of his writings are to bring us to what? Purity of heart. But I have to back up just a little bit. You've got to tell them the name of the book we're talking about. The name of the book, The Complete Writings of St. John of the Cross, which includes his, uh, his two most famous works, The Ascent of Mount Carmel and the work uh, that we'll be dealing with tonight, which is The Dark Knight. Uh, and, of course, it, it also includes his poetry and The Living Flame of Love, The Spiritual Canticle, the other two most significant works yeah, of St. John. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the commentary. Yeah, and, and uh, I, I highly recommend it. I, I think I told the story the first week that we spoke about John, that I bought this book some 25 years ago, I think, and tried to get through it and uh, put it aside, quite convinced that John simply was unapproachable. I might have even had a less than charitable perspective than that, but nonetheless, uh, some number of years later, I did have the opportunity to pick it up again, and it's what brought me to Carmel. St. John, unquestionably, is what brought me to Carmel. So, All right, back uh, to purity of heart now. Back to purity of heart, okay. Um, the love chapter uh, is the best place to begin when we talk about purity of heart. Purity of heart means that we are working to purify our heart of everything that is not God, of anything that would uh, impede our progress to union with God. And so let's remind ourselves what purity of heart is really all about. 1 Corinthians thirteen four through 7. Everybody is, of course, familiar with the passage. 
Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. And what's interesting about this passage, Francis, and I've pointed this out so many times um, in different forums where I was speaking, is that Paul starts off with two uh, positives, two proactives, two affirmatives, and then he goes through no less than eight don'ts. Here are all the (laughs) things you don't. And that's exactly right. That's the chipping away. That's the sculpting work that has to be done. Uh, Paul is telling us that love is as much about what we have to eliminate in our lives as it is about what we have to proactively do. We have choices. We absolutely have choices, and we have to recognize that ultimately our love is not something that we, the, the, the level of purity of heart and love that we're talking about is not something that we can create. It's not an emotional reaction. It's actually an act of will, uh, an act of will to dispose and to overcome these things. And then, of course, God infuses that love into our soul. Yeah, that doesn't always feel very good. (laughs) It doesn't feel good. It can be be difficult. It can be dry. uh, And it leads us through these difficult stages. But let's talk about, again, as I mentioned before, and I'm going to ask if you would, uh, Francis, read this chapter on Elijah. We always want to go back and and remind ourselves of the the uh, first father of our order, the prophet of our order, Elijah. And this chap, this uh, verse from First Kings nineteen seven through nine, is a good example of this transition now from the active night of sense into this passive night. We are no longer uh, fully engaged in the work the Lord's begun to take over. And how does Elijah bring us there? And, and this is interesting that you would pick this, because I'd never thought of it with this scripture passage, so I'm really glad you're bringing this out. Okay, here we go. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. Now, it's interesting that we use the analogy of eating and drinking when we said that the active night is fundamentally about uh, beginning to practice mortification and doing away with these things. Fasting, of course, is a component of that. But it's not fasting in... uh, We're not talking about fasting only in the material sense. And we said this last week, that the active night of sense is about the passions in the heart. That's what we're fasting from. The asceticism of denying ourselves food or drink or pleasurable uh, sense uh, objects strengthens the heart. We said asceticism is the Greek for exercise. That's fundamentally what it is. And we exercise the um, will by denying, using the will to overcome the body, to deny ourselves. And by doing so, we feed ourselves with spiritual food. And this is what the angel is counseling Elijah in this passage. Feed yourself with spiritual food, meaning strengthen your will through the eating and drinking of spiritual food. We would say that in the context of denial. By denying, we are literally strengthening our spirit. God is infusing spirit. He's drawing us into spirit. And so the analogy flips itself, if you will. Uh, But nonetheless, Elijah is strengthened by that. And then where does he go? What's the last passage? Where does Elijah go? 
he enters the cave, the darkness again. Remember the analogy to the darkness. We're going to be entering an area where our senses will no longer serve us in the way that they have in the past. And this is good, because we don't want to just live life according to our senses. I would be stuck in relativism, wouldn't we? <laughs> we would. That's right. Everything has to be measured, and it has to be proven, and we fall, uh, we fall victim to uh, those more practical elements, which we hear so much about in our world today. Where's the proof? Where's the uh, uh, definition? Where's the uh, you know, evidence, if you will? Uh, that God exists, or that He loves us, or that yeah, we uh, the get... practice of the virtues will bear fruit. Yeah, we got to get away from just this sensory world. There's a there's a whole another reality here that we're we're trying to you know uh, reach, and and God is trying to pull us through. And you know He's pure spirit, and so we because our souls are so small, and we have been attached, or we've grown in some ways that we shouldn't have grown, then, you know, he's got to try to bring us back into that, and we have to purify our spirit. But, you know, we can't do a lot of that. We we can only do so much. In fact, John says that you absolutely cannot reach union with God without him working passively on you. Yes, that's right. And uh, this strengthening course is preparation, is predisposition, is disposing ourselves to be able to do the work that God has to do. We're strengthening that muscle, if you will, so that we can un- uh, undertake the challenges that you talked about when we're hiking up that mountain. There are things that are going to be done to us, if you will, uh, in this case, uh, through a, the hands of a loving God, but we have to strengthen ourselves in preparation. And what are the three principal virtues, uh, Francis, that we're going to use to strengthen ourselves in preparation for this? Oh. John talks about this all the way through. These are so big. Faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and love. And I, I, we're not going to spend uh, time at this uh, juncture of the program because um, we simply don't have the time. But um, I strongly advocate to our listeners that they take some time to explore the writings in the Catechism on the virtues of faith, hope, and love. It's so much larger than what we uh, perhaps initially uh, envision that we're talking about in the context of faith, hope, and love. And, of course, John's going to talk to us later about how we're purifying those three virtues, and what's the fundamental means through which we purify those. Prayer. And I have to say, we got to remember, too, as we read, John, how the faith, hope, and love are connected to the memory, the intellect, and will, which are the interior uh, faculties of the soul. So that will come into more play as we get into the um, active and passive night of spirit. But we have to mention that now so we remember this. Absolutely. All right. Let, let's move on with John. Um, we'll use the analogy again of the uh, the, the child on the playground. Uh, you referred to the child uh, rearing uh, a moment ago, and of course, the child on the playground says, "Well, I can take on the you know the small slide and so forth." But uh, God says, "Okay, well now you know how would you like to step up to the larger slide, or maybe it's a, a swing, and the child can get to the smallest swing, but can't get to the larger swing." And so God says, "Okay, at this point, now I've got to lift you up." And what are the issues here? What are the reasons that we're uh, being guided and 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 uh, um, you know lifted up, if you will, by God at this phase. Well, it's a, a couple, but not the least of which are the simple fact that these passive elements of sense, these attachments, we're blinded to. We don't know. We don't see what those attachments might be. So, for example, we may have uh, an unusual attachment to our title at work, or we may have an unusual attachment to some material object in our life. And only through God engaging us in this passive uh, night of the sense will we come to the realization that we've got an unproductive uh, 
uh, uh, attachment, a passion, an impediment to union with God, which we wouldn't be able to discover on our own. And I think as far as people who are really trying to grow in the spiritual life, that you might find that being attached to those consolations, to those good feelings, to uh, having fervor, having uh, you know a, a sense of really wanting to do something, well, well, who are you when you don't have that? That's what we're going to find out. How deep is your love? Well, I want to capitalize on a point that phrases, uh, Francis raised last week, just before we go to the break, and that is, this idea that the normal day-to-day struggles and trials that we face in our life are not oftentimes the dark night in and of itself. Uh, There are certainly elements, and they can contribute to uh, bringing us to the dark night, but uh, oftentimes it can be mistaken. And so John's going to give us, after the break, very explicit uh, direction and examples of what will confirm for us that we've actually entered a dark night uh, as opposed to simply a trial in our life. We'll pick that up after the break. I want to uh, remind our listeners, uh, I know, I know this because we'll hear from folks, Francis, after the program, uh, that somebody out there has had an experience with the passive night of sense. They know what it feels like. They can articulate um, the emotion, the, uh, at times, the darkness, at times, the uh, despair. Of course, that's the great trap when you enter one of these nights, and you're going to tell us in a moment about um, what impedes folks progress in this stage and what keeps them from moving forward. Well, Francis, I want to pick up just quickly before I, I um, have, ask you to take us through the 
indicators that John talks about, and I want to emphasize um, that the Lord has picked us up in the active night of sense, if you will. He's begun to move our focus to the Spirit, which is what brings us into the desert, hence the dryness. But I also want to emphasize that it's never a surprise to God what progress we're making or what progress we're going to make. He recognizes that it's likely a surprise to us on some level, but he wants us to understand what our commitment is, not what his commitment is. His commitment has already uh, been demonstrated by the cross. It's our commitment that is a challenge for us. How serious are we? And one of the ways that we can look in the active night of sense is, what commitments did we make to prayer, to fasting, to taking advantage of the sacraments, to the practice of virtues? Did we, did we deliberately pursue those activities in a formal way, or was it more uh, sort of catch-as-catch-can? And it's, again, not God waiting to see how we're going to do. He knows it. It's his waiting for us to see how we are going to respond and how committed we are, because based on that, he'll give us the amount of a trial, if you will, in the darkness, uh, uh, the passive a dark night that we can stand. He'll never give us more than we can take. So we have to understand what we're prepared for. But John does give us these, I call road markers, their explanations, uh, indicators, if you will, that there's confirmation that we are, in fact, entering a dark night, something other than just a trial. What are some of those road signs along the way? Okay. Well, the first one is we no longer get consolation from our devotional practices. So you want to comment on that? Yeah. Well, of course, uh, when we're in the um, early stages of prayer, we begin with vocal prayer, and then we get to a deeper meditative prayer. And we seem to get a consistency in terms of the uh, input and output with regard to our prayers. We, many of our prayers are answered. We feel great consolation. We feel great comfort. We feel great peace when we pray. And when we begin to enter this stage, that gets reversed a little bit. And it's not that prayer is a bad thing, but prayer becomes a difficult thing. It becomes dry. It becomes um, it, it's empty many times of consolation. Yeah, you know, we might have a sense of uh, lack of meaning in our life. Uh, your, but your hearts remain... Um, they're restless until they rest in God. So even though prayer is dry and unsatisfying, you're, you're trying to figure out what to do about this. Right. But, but you're kind of miserable here. Yeah, it is not a pleasant experience. That's true. And again, we're, we're emphasizing this is in the sense world. It's in the sensual world. It's the things that we can sense through the human uh, experience, our five senses, of course, as well as the internal sense. But then there's a there's a second risk here that John talks about, and that's this idea that, well, what if this is just depression? What if it's melancholy? What if the weather's been bad for, you know, weeks on end, as we've had on occasion yeah. here in Dayton? And it could be that, but... Yeah, it could be that. <laughs> but so, if we haven't fallen back into sin and we're still striving ahead, then he gives us another marker. So these three indicators should all be present. And uh, So I'm going to mention the second one, the soul feel feels that it's lost its way and it's not serving God and it's painful. So, in other words, there's a, a great habitual turning to God. You're thinking about God, you wanted to be with God, but it doesn't feel good, and so now what? Yeah, what you're feeling actually is this idea that I think I've lost my way. I think I'm, of course, something went wrong somewhere. I must not be serving God. And the, the most pronounced experience is I'm displeasing God. If you're in a dark night, 
that's your reaction because your love has begun to grow even at this early stage god has begun to infuse his love the love of the holy spirit the fire of the holy spirit into our soul and we know the one we love we begin to experience concern over whether we're adequately loving him because the emotion is not there we may be frustrated at times even with the father we may feel frustration but we will always be concerned about whether we're responding in a way that's pleasing to him if it's not a dark night we'll likely just go with the frustration well god's you know failed me again or uh, i don't understand him or you know obviously he's not given me the insight and we're more likely to turn away at that stage but even then Francis, you'll tell us there could be a third element that is necessary. Well, that third element then is that the person will find itself powerless to meditate and make use of the imagination as they previously did. So your way of prayer is different. In fact, you kind of might want to be at the point where forget all of that and you just want to sit and be quiet and be alone with the alone like Blessed Elizabeth of the Trinity tells us. Yeah, and this is the most difficult perhaps to... uh, to understand. I want to use the analogy, actually. I want to build off the second point that we just raised and build off the analogy that John uses. He uses the uh, story of the Israelites, of course, leaving Egypt um, and, and going out into the desert. There's great enthusiasm as they begin to move away from what is a trial to them, what is imprisonment. And, of course, again, I'll rely on the Desert Fathers here, and they say, um, we think that we possess the things in our life, but the fact of the matter is, if we are unable to do without them, hence we're um, totally uh, taken by the possessions in our lives. And again, the, the examples might be a material possession, it might be title, it might be affinity to, to a certain person. Um, the fact is, if we are unable to do without those things, those things actually possess us. That's what uh, John's teaching is here. He's drawing on the Desert Fathers. We are possessed, not, uh, we don't possess the item, the item possesses us. So. The children of Israel leave Egypt. They're leaving the possessions, if you will. They're moving into freedom. They're excited about that. But then they get out into the desert. What happens? They're complaining. They're like, I'm tired of this food. I want them food from before. And and God has been sending them manna, this manna that is supposed to change to whatever taste that they want. Now, what is the problem with them? He's begun to feed them the spiritual food, right? And we talked about this a little bit earlier. God's begun to move our appetites off the... Literally, Scripture uses the term the flesh pots, which <laughs> means the meats uh, and the onions of Egypt. Um, he's begun to move us away from that. He's begun to move us to a drier food, uh, the manna which falls from heaven, a spiritual food. But because we're not ready, if you will, our, our spiritual digestive tract is not yet ready to consume that food, we somewhat yearn back to the flesh pots and the onions of Egypt. We want to go back. Not to the food. The food analogy, unfortunately, is, is an easy one, but, but let's be more explicit here. We want to go back to the things that brought us consolation. And the, the familiar. We don't yeah. like this unknown stuff. We don't like the darkness. We don't like the dryness. We don't like the desert. And so we want to move back into the world, and we want to have the comfort and the consolation, even if it meant imprisonment. This is the irony. The Israelites mm. said, take us back to Egypt, Moses. Take us back to the... To the uh, imprisonment, the difficulty of our life there, because it's better than the unknown of what we're experiencing here. And this is the, this is the analogy. And this is what we do in prayer. We're, we're thinking, oh, we, we used to have such good consolations when we were prayer. We were so devoted, and things felt so great. We, there was a lot of fervor. And all of a sudden, that's all cut and dried, and now it's arid and distracted. And, you know, it, you're feeling a little angry about it. 
and and you want to keep going back to the old and recreating the old to think that you know well, I think a lot of people measure their prayer life, but how good they feel or how good it feels, and that is certainly not the way you measure prayer. That's absolutely right. It's a great danger, right, is is this idea. And, of course, again, for the child, <clears throat> the idea of affection from the parent is perfectly appropriate. Yes, you got to know that they love you because and the I, parent loves you. And I expect to get that sort of a reaction when I smile. You know, as a three-year-old, I smile or I do something playful or I beg for uh, the gift that I want, I'm more likely to get it. You know, as a father of a young child, and my wife would tell me this if she were here, uh, you know, she, she wraps you around her finger and she gives, she, <laughs> yes, she she gives you those little blue eyes and she gets whatever she wants. Well, that's actually quite normal in a parental-child relationship when the child is quite young. They they need to know that you love them. But as they get older, and I think we used <clears throat> this analogy last week, and they come looking for the keys to the car, well, now it's a little bit more difficult. There's going to be a little discussion that's going to go on before <laughs> that gift is going to be given. And that's what's happening here. Um, we are moving into the spirit, the maturity, if you will, of the spiritual um, uh, interior. And so the senses have to move in that direction as well. And God is beginning to m- remove some of those consolations. And he's asking us to continue to actively work at removing those as well. So this third sign, Francis, that you identified... The dialogue with God begins to move away from this idea of consolation, and I find that the active use of my intellect for meditation is no longer as effective as it used to be. This would be one of the sure signs. If I'm able still to uh, go through the process of meditation, as St. Teresa taught us early on, and I want to talk about the analogy to the mansions, by the way, just quickly, But if we're able to actively engage the intellect and create the images and the pictures and and so forth that led us here, um, now we're going to find that extremely difficult to do. Right, because he wants to build our, our faith. And faith doesn't always, you know, if you just go by what you can reason, then you're stuck. Exactly right. Exactly right. You brought up the point. Intellect, memory, and will are purified through faith, hope, and love, and we'll talk about that in greater detail, as you said, when we get into the next stage. But keep that in mind. The intellect is not overcome, but is perfected by faith. I don't want to suggest that it's overcome or it's diminished. It's perfected by faith. Yes. The memory, the human experience, is perfected in hope, and the will, most um, uh, deliberately, is perfected in love. Our will must become God's will. And in so doing, of course, we're perfected. This is a, is a bit more advanced. It's in the next, uh, the spiritual, uh, both active and passive experiences that John talks us through. All right. So where does this happen on this spiritual journey? Well, if you know Teresa Vavla and the interior castle, um, we would put this stage of the passive night of sense around the fourth mansion. Because the third mansion, things are feeling pretty good. And then the fourth mansion, your prayer starts to change. All right, and that's what's happening here. Uh, there's a sense of, of that dryness, that distractedness, but there's a new type of prayer that's starting, and it's like the dark rays that St. John of the Cross talks about. It's a contemplative prayer, an infused contemplative prayer that only God grants. It's not something we can earn. It's not something we can make happen. We can only be open and receptive, but it's this infused contemplative prayer that helps that comes because of God's grace, His gift to us, and it changes us. Right, and we begin to move somewhat from purgation, 
this is all purgation. It's all the elimination, it's the chipping, the sculpting, if you will, that we talked about earlier, to the earliest stages of illumination. Mm. And we'll talk about the benefits here in just a moment because we want to make sure that we focus on the benefits. Oh, yeah. But part of the benefits are illuminative. And they, they are illuminative both about our understanding of God, which, again, we can't limit, Uh, Hence the reason for the failure at use of imagination and meditation. It's because they are too limiting of our perspective of God, and God won't be put in that box. He won't allow us to create him. He's already created us. Right. Um, But also this idea that uh, the use of the imagination would impede progress because God then can't give himself to us in the way that he's trying to at this stage. So we begin to get illumination both about God, about ourselves, and about the world. And we begin to see, with our active uh, night of sense, we now begin to see the limiting aspects of those things that we were so attached to in the world. We begin to see them in in a true light. This reminds me of John's famous phrase, we must go by a way we know not. The darkness, right. So who enters? Okay. There's a lot of people, the majority of people on this spiritual journey who are, you know, really seeking God, the majority of these people will enter this passive night of sense. And these are the people who are humble, patient, they're prayerful, chaste, obedient to authority, they're practicing daily mental prayer, and then they get into this dry type of prayer. But the sad fact is that comparatively few people who reach this first night of the passive sense are going to go beyond it. So although God calls everybody to this, not everybody responds the the same way. And, you know, God wants to bring us into a higher level of relationship, but he's not going to force us. So what's the problem? John cautions a little bit, though, on this point, and we want to be clear. Absolutely everybody is invited to this stage, right, to the purgation and the beginning of illumination. But John does say that some people... We'll go back and forth through these stages here, uh, the, the um, active night and the passive night of sense, and they'll fall back on their meditation. They'll fall back on what they're comfortable with. They're not losing ground by any means. They're, they're actively seeking God. They're actively meditating. They're actively praying, and they are being continuously purified. But John says not everybody is called to this highest level of contemplation, which we'll talk about later. We're not there yet. And so some may stay in that. <clears throat> particular state, and they'll live out their charism, whatever that might be, in this particular state. We want to be clear that those called to Carmel are called to a life of contemplation. Whether they're seculars or they're monastic, they're called to a life of contemplation. Right. And this is hence, Francis, the process that uh, you've gone through for many years, and I began some five years ago, of discerning whether the call to Carmel is, in fact, what the Lord is calling me to, because as it's significant. Uh, a, a commitment and a significant uh, responsibility on our part. Uh, but John points out not everybody's called to it. <clears throat> and he says, because God knows best. That's why. God That's the answer best. to the why. Exactly. <laughs> However, there is sometimes the, the problem is that it's our lack of charity, that our poor response, our neglect, or our selfishness, even bad spiritual direction that doesn't want us to move on to a different pri- type of prayer. So... Even even among those who are spiritually earnest, only a few will get past this. So we really have to go up that narrow way. Yeah, and John gives us some very good advice here. Uh, 
The greatest affliction, he says, suffered by these souls is the fear that they've fallen back. That's the greatest affliction. Why is that the greatest affliction? Love has begun to take hold in the in the soul. Love, yeah. not the love that we ginned up through our thinking or that we emotionalize through our human experience. We're beginning to be purified of that now. We're getting purity of heart. We're beginning that that phase. And so we begin to recognize as is said in the Song of Songs, the lover of the Song of Songs, the loved one, and we begin to love the Lord in a much deeper way. And our greatest fear becomes, I think I've offended him. I'm falling back. I, the reaction isn't the same. The, the experience of him is not the same in prayer. I think I've fallen back, and that becomes our greatest concern. And you'll know, you'll have these thoughts running through your mind. What did I do? How did I offend How can I return to this uh, consolation in my relationship with the Lord um, what is it that I did wrong, and how can I go back and correct it? These are some of the experiences, some of the emotions, some of the intellectual reactions of transitioning from this active night of sense into the passive night of sense. So what's God doing, actually? Um, at this time, when you're experiencing this distracted, arid, dry, dark, period kind of prayer, um, God is communicating himself through light and love, and this is so bright <laughs> that it consumes our self-love and self-will, and it, it blinds us because it's so bright. So that's the dark and the painful. And then God is drawing the soul from this base manner of loving, a love that's filled with pleasure and self, even though sometimes we can't see that, to a higher degree of love, a self-sacrificial love. And the, then God is liberating the soul from this low exercise of the senses to a higher exercise of the spirit in which the soul is being expanded so that it may receive more of God, uh, so that God may be more abundant with the soul and free the soul of these imperfections that keep it from it. So he's going to shut down these consolations and lure, lure the soul into this deeper mode of loving. This is the weaning action. And this is very important. We want this. We really want this. And we have to ask for it. We have to prepare ourselves. But we have to have courage and determination and perseverance. Yeah, uh, St. Teresa, of course, uh, focuses very much on the virtue of humility. She recognizes that the trials, and of course this is a matter of personal experience and, and uh, what each of them face, but for Teresa, it, it, it's humility. Her, her great challenge and her great call to us is, you must be humble. You must recognize that you'll have to be humble. That will be your shield as you go through these difficult things. John focuses on something else, though. John focuses on faith. Remember, John says, faith is the only proximate means to this union. That's yeah. the only way. And for John, who was an intellectual, you might well imagine he would <laughs> choose faith. Because for him... This is, as I said a moment ago, the intellect begins to fail us. The, the uh, experience of understanding that we uh, had prior to this uh, new revelation of God in our soul was that we would do something and God would react a certain way. And again, back to the analogy of the child. But I asked and I begged and I pleaded and I got the sucker or the ice cream right. or the whatever. Now I'm a little older and I'm supposed to be a little bit more mature and so the stamping of the feet and throwing, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the door slammed or what have you, 
doesn't seem to be getting me the car that I wanted to borrow. And the people who pray with their head more than their heart, this is much more of a struggle for them because now they're having to go through a different way and they don't get to use their mind anymore because faith is not of what you can think of. And so this is really tough. So those of you who pray with your hearts already, you're already a step up. Yeah, And John, uh, again, um, we want to go back to this idea of the... uh, intellect, the memory, and the will being perfected, and the perfection of love, just to draw quickly on that analogy, John says is wrapped up in the will, and we remember in the Our Father, we pray every day that we pray the Our Father, and I pray that we pray the Our Father every day, we say, thy will be done, and how many times do we trip over those words, or perhaps we say them quickly? We've got to slow down, we've got to pray. St. Teresa told us that one Our Father prayed perfectly, prayed with genuine um, affection and genuine uh, desire for the love of God uh, can transform the soul. And so we have to recall, thy will be done is the prayer that we utter. And this is John saying, in love, in the purification of our heart, as we're moving through the passive night of sense, we have to be focusing on faith, yes, overcoming the limitations of our intellect, not overcoming our intellect. Our intellect is perfected. Hope, overcoming the memory of the human experience, and love, overcoming our will in favor of the Father's will. And we have to have the humility that St. Teresa teaches us about. Because then John tells us, we'll begin to experience what is, uh, uh, David writes about in Psalm 43.3, my soul thirsts for mm. the living God. We'll begin to, just the early stages, we'll begin to experience this thirst for the living God, the desire to really share our love with God, to share our life, to give our life over to God. And we can't fall into the trap, Francis, can we, of thinking, well, we're doing this, we're creating, this is something we're bringing about. And the only way we're, we're left safe of that trap is the passive night, because we wouldn't choose this path for ourselves, would we? Right. It's too, it's too arid, it's too dry, it's too difficult. Right. Um, well, the question comes up, well, what do you do? Okay, we're in this miserable kind of prayer, so what are we supposed to do? Well, we're just going to be sit, sitting there, and we're just going to love God, and we're just going to hang out with Him, right? We're just going to spend time with Him, um, just looking at Him, just loving Him, and just being submissive. Um, we're going to continue to persevere in our time of prayer, though. We're not going to say, oh, since it's not like it used to be and it doesn't feel so good I'm going to shorten it you know or or oh this just feels like I'm wasting time oh boy don't I know that one and no it may feel like you're wasting time but don't buy it stay in prayer that time commitment is honored and God is working in you you must stay you must persevere and trust in God and his action in you so you're just going to be quiet and just like teenagers, you're just going to hang out. You say, well, what'd you do? Nothing. Just hung out. <laughs> so just hang out with God. And John says, be patient. Don't dwell on the affliction. Don't dwell on the affliction. That is so important. Of course, uh, I always go back to Elizabeth of the Trinity in this regard, where uh, she says that we have to take all of those things that are happening to us, but we have to see them through that prison. For her, solitude is actually bringing all of that otherwise churning emotion into that singular experience, that purity of heart, that silence of the heart that Mary, uh, uh, St. Luke talks about uh, when he writes about the Blessed Mother. John says, be patient, 
Don't dwell on the affliction. Enter into the silence, and as you say, Francis, sit there and just be with the Lord. And when we're able to do that, these three signs manifest themselves. We enter into that silence. Now some things really begin to happen in our soul, don't they? And what does John tell us are going to happen in terms of the benefits that are going to accrue because of this? Well, the benefits are great because it's leading us to a closer union with God. We know ourselves more, and we know who we are before God more. There is more fruits of love and illumination, um, a greater love of neighbor, more spiritual peace. There's an in, inward peace that, that can't be rustled. The, the soul is purer, and you have a more habitual remembrance of God throughout your day, a greater growth and exercise of the virtues, a truer knowledge of who you are and who you are before God, and this great appreciation of the grandeur and the immensity of God. Um, and, and you really start to think of others more highly than of yourself. It's more sacrificial. You're learning love. These are difficult things because hidden in the terminology, and John uh, states it explicitly, we begin to see our own misery. We really begin to see our own misery. We begin to see how the little things, remember we said the little things, how Mean the little lot. things really do matter. The little bursts of anger, the little... Uh, self-centered uh, actions, the little, um, uh, you know, uh, frustrations, if you will, over minor things, those start to loom larger here. We begin yes. to see that the implications of some of our behaviors and some of our thought patterns and so forth uh, can be very unproductive. It can certainly be an impediment to our union with God, and that begins to concern us. At the same time, however, we also begin to see the mercy of God. Mm. We begin to see the real love of God, not the one that we created, not the one that we ginned up in our ima imagination, but the real love of God made manifest. And we know that if we can begin, to, or continue rather, this journey, we'll be able to adopt that love. That love will become ours, will become uh, the will of the Father. We will allow the Father's will to take over. And that's what John is showing us in the passive night of sense that we've spoken about. I want to uh, conclude, of course, with a, a prayer, uh, Francis, but just as a program reminder, next week we'll be dealing with the active night of spirit. This is where the road gets very difficult, of course, and we're, we're challenged, and so I want to invite our listeners to come back again next week and listen as we take you through an understanding of what we have to do to dispose ourselves for the more difficult challenge of the passive night of spirit. But before we conclude, Francis, would you bring us out with prayer, please? Yes, this is a prayer from Father Gabriel of St. Mary Magdalene. O oh Lord, strengthen my desire for union with you, so that I may have the courage to face, for love of you, the total purification of my senses. Well, thank you again for listening and joining us on Carmelite Conversations from Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. God bless you all. We'll look forward to being with you next week. <laughs> 